Well, I'm super excited to be here. Hope you guys are too. Um, you can open up in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you're grabbing a pew Bible, I just checked before I walked up here. I think it's 939 is the page number. Um, so think about just some of the stuff that we just sang, right? As the praise goes up, the walls come down. Uh, do we really have a, a, a distinct belief that it's in exalting Jesus that everything else pales in comparison? I sure hope so. Uh, I know that that challenges me every time along uh, where, the, where the words are rich and textured. Like, keep me near the cross, there is my glory ever and always. You realize what you're saying. Keep me near the pinnacle of first century humiliation and defeat. That's the cross. Keep me near that because in that's my glory ever. Whoa, didn't realize I was singing that. <laughs> There's a lot happening here this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. We're going to be diving into Romans for the next 10 weeks. Uh, this morning we're looking at Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 and we're looking at defining just the gospel. Now I realize that's like the pinnacle for everything. That's why we're here. So whatever de definition I provide will will not suffice for everything that God wants us to know. But I'm going to try. <laughs> so uh, as we do that, why don't we just turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer and ask him and his spirit to do the work here that we can't do on our own. So Father, we come before you this morning just knowing our weakness, our frailty, and we just ask for you to move. We ask for your word to be made clear to us, to convict us, encourage us, and propel us onto mission for you. It's in your strong name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. So a couple of uh, housekeeping items about the book of Romans. I really don't want to spend a ton of time kind of breaking it down and giving you all the history. I just want to give you kind of a flyover view. The book of Romans uh, was written by the Apostle Paul. And it was probably around the late 50s AD, so about 57, 55, somewhere in that range. And it was toward the end of Paul's missionary journey. It's widely believed by most scholars that Paul wrote the letter from Corinth and then had it sent. And then um, if you pay attention to the rest of the book of Romans, like Romans 15, 24, somewhere in there, I think, uh, Paul talks about how he wants to come see them on his way to Rome. So he's, he's going to uh, Jerusalem and... Um, as he, or sorry, he wants to see them on his way to Spain. So as he goes to Jerusalem and then on to Rome, catch them um, as he's moving in his missionary journey. So it's helpful for us to understand, okay, he's, he's been prevented from seeing them because he's been planting churches, he's been discipling people, he's been um, busy. <laughs> and he's also endured some things. And we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time there. But Paul has endured uh, persecution, shipwreck, he's been uh, at sea, uh, for a couple of nights at a time and a shipwreck. I mean, Paul has endured quite a bit to expound on the gospel of Jesus Christ and advance the church. And so when he says at the beginning, hey, I've been prevented from seeing you, he really means it. It's not like just, uh, hey, we should get together, and then it just doesn't happen. Like, Paul actually has pieces. And so uh, that brings us to, like, what's the, what's the purpose of, of Romans. Why would he write the book? Because the book, there's, there's been no other book in all the Bible that has been so scrutinized, so picked apart, so expounded upon, so loved by so many. Um, why would he write Romans? Well, one of the reasons 
is uh, the Emperor Claudius in Rome at the time, in uh, 49 AD, had actually exiled, kicked out all of the Messianic Jews. He had said, it's time, Jews, for you guys to leave. And he kicks them out of the city of Rome. And so about the time that Paul is writing this letter, uh, Claudius has passed, next emperor's in place. I can't remember if it's Nero who comes next, but Nero's was horrible. <laughs> but as the Jews are coming back, there's, there's this like, okay, people who weren't Jews became believers, and now they're establishing churches all over Rome, and then Jews are coming back, and it's like, whoa, this doesn't look like what I thought it used to. This is a little bit different. This is hard to imagine. Um, the best way I can say it is like picture kind of growing up, starting being a part of like Northfield for your whole life and then leaving for five years and then coming back and it just looks a lot different. Maybe the feel of it is different. Maybe the, the makeup, the people is it's just different. And that's a little bit of what Paul is kind of addressing because what carries with it then are some uh, theological issues that would be at argument among them in this conversation. So he's addressing these things. So today my hope is to define the gospel, to outline some of its implications as Paul does in our text. But first, a brief quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther was uh, a German monk in the 1500s, and he wrote this concerning Romans. This epistle is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, I love this last line, the more precious it becomes, the better it tastes. I love that. So that's what we're doing. We're diving into that. But I want to start with a story. Um, a number of years ago, some of you, most of you, are aware that we walked through uh, cancer with my daughter. Um, and one of the things, uh, sleep was like at a premium, right? Um, Jessica was taking care of our two boys, um, very young and sleepless <laughs> at home, and I was at the hospital sleepless there because there's lots of beeping. I don't know, people who can sleep through like beeping and machines, you are my heroes, but I cannot do that. And so I remember one night, I had actually fallen asleep, and it was, it was uh, the sun had not yet, still dark, I'm not sure if it was winter time or what, but I'm laying there on, on the couch that's supposed to be a bed, not really, and, and I'm just taking it all in, like, oh, sleep, this is wonderful. And then this guy comes, and he like gets down in front of me, like shakes my shoulder and wakes me up. I'm like, serious? <laughs> I roll over, and he's got like, you know, he's got the full doctor's outfit. It's a resident, and he's you know, just doing his work. And he comes in, and he goes, um, so can you tell me um, what first alerted you to Jada's condition? I'm like, bro, it's like five in the morning. I'm not sure what you're doing here, but, uh, and then he goes on, like, uh, how did the tumor present? I'm like, it didn't present. Like, thank God for Dr. Bear, wherever you are. He helped us. Um, we go through this whole thing. He asked me all these questions. Finally, I was so fed up and so tired. I'm like, um, can you, is that noted somewhere like in a file on a computer? Surely electronics are a thing now. Can you, can you look that up? And he goes, yeah. I'm like, can you, can you go do that? I'm going to get back to trying to sleep. Like I, I feel like it's a good thing for me to sleep. And so kind of an exasperation, I send him out of the room and tell him to go find out all the information he needs to know. And, and I get it, the more I thought about it throughout the course of the day, I'm like, he was just trying to do his job. 
right? He, as a, a resident, might also be called like an apprentice doctor. So he, novice, he's growing, he's learning, and he's, he's gathering all the essential data so that he can report back to the attending physician. I get all that. And, and OSF in Peoria, if you're not aware, is a research-based hospital, so you have that. You have residents who are constantly coming in, and Jess would say the same thing. They're asking the same questions a thousand times every day, and you're answering the same questions, and after a while, you just get tired of it. And so this guy comes in, does his job, and I boot him out. I'm like, thanks, <laughs> but no thanks. Time for you to leave. And I guess, overall, it's the apprenticeship piece. This guy was doing his job that the doctor had told him to do. And if you get nothing else this morning, just take this one thought home. This is the gospel, right? The gospel calls us to believe in an apprentice under Jesus. And we're going to unpack that this morning through looking at what the gospel is and encouragement through the gospel and then ultimately not being ashamed of the gospel. But more than anything, the gospel calls us to believe. You could actually replace that word believe with trust. When I think of trust, I just think of leaning the full weight of my belief and my concerns upon him. So the gospel calls us to believe in an apprentice under Jesus. So the question becomes, well, what is the gospel? How about we read the first seven verses and find out what God's word has to say? It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We could just pause right there, that term servant. Some Bibles actually translate it slave. It's the Greek word uh, doulos from where we get our uh, word or term um, doula, which is a midwife assistant. So even think about that. A midwife is somebody who brings new life. They help in bringing new life into the world. So Paul is here saying, hey, I'm a servant of bringing new life into the world. That analogy has always captured my heart. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, that means sent on mission with the delegation of authority from Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus was actually a man. Okay? And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is God. He nails it right there. Two short phrases. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to have this clear understanding of what the gospel is because it reinforces our identity and calling. You can see it there with how Paul even speaks about himself. If you think carefully about it, it says the gospel of God. A lot of times people will summarize the gospel into the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ you would also actually have to add to that the return of Jesus. Because if Jesus doesn't return, what are we doing? <laughs> it's, the whole point is that he came once and he's coming again. And he's establishing his rule and his reign on the earth through his people. You see, this is the gospel in the shortest definition I could give. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. Short definition, every implication. How did he... Let's just look at a list of passages that will, that will strengthen our understanding. I'm just going to read these in succession, no comment. I just want you to just hear this. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature and appearance of a man and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, it's, it's it. This is the gospel. I could go on verse after verse after verse. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us. And there's more. But more than anything, these passages, they outline Paul's call they, they outline the legitimacy of Jesus' lordship and his invitation to a faith-fueled obedience. It's actually in Titus chapter 2 where Paul says that it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to unrighteousness. It's not your discipline. It's not your ability. It's not your personhood. It's not your personality. It's the grace of God that teaches you to say no to that. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 17, when he's writing to the Romans, like, I thank God that you became obedient to the standard of teaching from the heart that we gave you. Because the standard of teaching that you're to be obeying has to be something that comes from within. So here's the question then. Is this the gospel you have? Is it? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? And we use that term Lord, we're like, yes, Lord Jesus, come to Lord me. That's why Paul calls himself a servant and a slave, because he is under a master. It means I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough to do it on my own. I need to be subservient to someone who is. And so the question becomes, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Because I look at it this way. This is an invitation to belonging and being. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's calling us to apprentice after him, to do what he does, to live like he lives, to love. That's the call. The call is not, can you agree that, that you are a sinner and that God saved you and that you prayed the prayer and you're good to go? Like, those are all important, right? A propositional truth, something I believe, something that's clear. Yes, I have to believe that. Guess what? If it stops there, I argue, we may not be Christians. He's calling you to apprentice to a way of life that is sacrificial, death-filled to self, to something that is so much greater than you. The gospel is Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's an invitation. Second, Paul begins to talk through of being encouraged through the gospel. Chapter uh, 1, verses 8 through 15 say this. First, I thank, my, <clears throat> I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, Rome at that time was kind of like the central and the capital, the empire of empires. And so because their faith was strong and the church was actually multiplying, he's saying, look, you have a reputation. Your faith is going out from the world. That's a high compliment. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I want you to focus in on Paul and prayer in these passages, that without ceasing, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I have legitimate excuses. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under no obligation, or sorry, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That last part, Paul is just saying this, look, The gospel's for everybody. Not just the nice people who you like that live next to you. Not just the people in the pew who you get along with, but the ones that you don't. And I am under obligation, Paul says, to preach the gospel to that person, the one I like and the one I hate, the one I I get along with and the one I can't stand, the one who I agree with politically and the one who I totally eschew, the one who accepts me and the one who rejects me. The gospel is for that person. Why? Because I'm that person. That's powerful. So Paul's talking about just being encouraged. And more than uh, than just being encouraged, there's a couple of things that capture my attention. Especially in verse 12. When Paul talks about being mutually encouraged, you you and me by each other's faith. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Okay, when, when you come into a room and you're hanging out with the Apostle Paul, I'm sure everybody else is silent. At least that's how we view him, right? Like, it's Paul. And Paul's, Paul's essentially saying this, I need encouragement. Have you ever let yourself just say that? Have you ever been so broken and so, like, just done and so, oh, I just need encouragement, Paul's saying, on my way to Spain, as I come through Rome, after I pass through Jerusalem, I want to stop as I pray with you because I know that when I'm with you, I'm going to be encouraged. 
But how can he say these things? He can say these things because he has been praying. Braden said it in his announcement. Man, we believe in the power of prayer, the importance of prayer, the centrality of prayer to move through the share closet. And you know what? God's doing some awesome things. And it's not because the share closet is set up really great and they have a great ministry and they do everything. It's because people have prayed. And more than that, they've obeyed after they've prayed, right? So this is what Paul is doing. Paul is showing us that what prepares my heart for the time together with you is prayer. I mean, think about it. Like, I really like Vic Emig. He's a good dude. But like, let's say Vic rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm like, ugh, I really don't like him. I'm frustrated with the fact that like Vic was kind of a turd toward me. So how am I going to deal with that? And so let's say, in humility... I get down off my high horse and I come all the way down and I pray for him day after day after day after day. God, open his eyes. God, soften his heart. God, move in him. God, reveal yourself to him. God, meet him as he's in your word. God, move powerfully in his family to bring him, whatever it might be, right? So then when I see him the following Sunday and my plea in the spirit has been for him, how is much easier is it for me to love him? Prayer prepares my heart for connection. And that's what Paul is saying. Prayer has prepared his heart for connection with a people he's never met. Paul has not been to Rome yet. Paul doesn't even know these believers. And he's over here saying, I pray for you continuously, always mentioning you in my prayers. So then truth to life, here's the question. Who are you always mentioning in your prayers? Who are you always mentioning in your prayers? Is it someone who actually doesn't have the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ? Hopefully. Here's the mind bender. Who's always mentioning you prayers? Because I would argue that the combination of those two is the beauty of community. That I begin to mention you in my prayers and you begin to mention me so that when we come together, the Spirit has set the stage for encouragement that we share spiritual things. Not like the Cubs are great. Well, actually, they're not. They've lost a lot. But in reality, that's the truth, right? I will always go superficial with someone when I've never prayed for them. I will go deep with people I pray for. That's what Paul's saying. Finally, we have this idea of what's the gospel, being encouraged through the gospel, and then we have the linchpin of all of the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul outlines what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel. And he says the simple piece that the righteous will live by faith. And that then is the starting point, the foundation, the bedrock for what he unpacks, the implications of it, and everything all throughout the book of Romans. The righteous will live by faith. You see, in the accepted and transformed through apprenticeship. We are not accepted and transformed just because we believe a set of propositional truths. I cannot say it enough. Just believing the right thing doesn't make you right. Okay? And the reason I can say that with authority is because I've read the Bible. And in the Bible, it says that even demons believe these things. And they shudder. 
demons' situation isn't really improved because they believe them, right? There is this idea that when you believe something, you carry it out in action. It has implications. So verses 16 and 17 say this. There's four fours if you're paying attention. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And here it is. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Another way to say that, I think the NLT says it this way. It is from, from faith from start to finish. And he says this, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So why does Paul say not ashamed? You're like, Paul, you're like a rock star. You're like an awesome apostle. You've been doing all these cool things. You're planting all these churches. You're discipling all these people. Why in the world would you say not ashamed? Because we're in gospel, and we automatically attach to that the good news of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But gospel was not intentionally or first a word that was meant only for Christians. It was a, pro- a proclamation um, used to declare the authority and rule of a king. And, and it was used to declare that authority and that rule in the furthest reaches of his kingdom where he was not present necessarily. Or as he was coming along, heralds ahead of him would be proclaiming, here comes Claudius or here comes Nero, most high sovereign of Rome. And they're proclaiming the good news of Claudius' rule, Nero's rule. You see, it would be like this. If you declare Nero, for example, prolifically horrible when it comes to treatment of Christians in terms of persecution, he would, he would dip them in tar and light them on fire to light his gardens at night. Okay, that's significant persecution. Okay, so when someone comes speaking the gospel of Nero, um, you're associated as a Roman citizen with Nero because he's your king. You see, all these kings, however, they, they lived and they ruled their kingdoms with terror and might. And, and here comes Paul. And he's declaring a different gospel. He's declaring a gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's declaring a gospel of a king who came down to the level of his subjects. He's declaring a king who actually died. He's declaring a king who sacrifices. He's declaring a king who risks being misunderstood in order that some might be saved. He's declaring a king that transforms from the inside out, not makes it happen from the outside in. He's declaring a whole different gospel. But he's borrowing the word gospel because everybody there would have gone, oh, gospel, it's like a proclamation. And, and so they're, they're automatically believing, thinking, yes, so the, wait a minute. So now I'm associated with the cross? Yes. Okay, so now I'm associated with someone who gave his life instead of killed other people? Yes. Okay, so now I'm associated with someone And you read like Matthew 5 through 7 and Jesus talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and those who do justice. And by the time everybody else with tanks and guns have figured out what's happening, Jesus is over here saying it's a way of love. And love takes a lot longer than external pressure. So Paul is imminently declaring a different kingdom. 
I love that phrase, the gospel is the power of God. That term power, dynamos, where we get our word dynamite. And I always, I always think of it this way, because it says it's, it's uh, the power of God to deliver or for salvation. I always think of it, it's dynamite to deliver me from myself. Like, Lord, blow up my little kingdom so I can live for yours. My little kingdom just needs to have a little stick of C4 put right in the middle of it, and boom, get rid of it. Because I want what you want, Jesus, not what I want. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't be ashamed of the fact that your king, though lowly, is unbelievably powerful and sovereign and loving and kind and merciful. Don't be ashamed of that. Then he talks about the righteousness of God and how the righteous shall live by faith. This is the whole point of the book. Habakkuk 2.4 says, But the righteous shall live by his faith. Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And Hebrews 10.38 says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And so we come back to this idea in closing. What does it mean to not be ashamed? Because Jesus... He's the only good king. He's the only one who rules through death to self and sacrifice and service to the society. Why else would he be called a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Why else? You see, association with him for the first century disciple meant utter embarrassment. You're asking me to attach myself to someone who's gentle and lowly instead of domineering and strong. Yes. Because that's how transformation happens. You, so, so Paul says, hey, look, don't be ashamed because you could be socially ostracized because of this. You could also be beaten and killed because of this. And I would just say this, that the gospel has always been costly. It was great cost to God himself when he gave up his own son. And it is received at great cost to yourself when you say, I choose to die to me. There is no exchange where we get the gospel and it doesn't hurt. There is no exchange where the gospel is somehow just light and easy. and You just live it and it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's your whole life is wrapped up in this. You are called to something that is death to self and life to Jesus. And if we think that we can get the gospel in our comfort, we're missing it. We are missing it. We don't get the gospel in our comfort. We get the gospel through great pain that came to Jesus. Remember that OSF that woke me up five in the morning? Later that day, Dr. Al, who Jess and I dearly love, walks in and he apologizes for the interruption. But he doesn't apologize with frustration or scorn toward the resident who's right there with him. Instead, he speaks of the process. Instead, he speaks of how the resident is learning and how this will be a learning moment for him. He was not embarrassed of the resident's actions. Though he has a grieving, needs sleep, and a child who is ill, he doesn't apologize for that. Because he knows that in this, this guy is going to learn something. And this week it hit me. 
The cross of Jesus was the most demeaning and humiliating death possible. He embraced it as the joy set before him, despising its shame, and invites you and me to apprentice in the way of life that embodies. Have you ever thought about it like that? You see, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. He always has been. He always will be. The gospel calls us to believe in and apprentice under Jesus. Apprenticeship means that you're going to get dirty. Apprenticeship means that you're going to make mistakes. But this is how God brings forth a new sort of humanity. This is how he redeems humanity. One mistake at a time. One person woken up at a time. One person flubbing up a presentation of the gospel. One person not doing a great job loving their neighbor. One at a time. And he captures our hearts. And he expands the kingdom continuously. Somebody dismiss us. I'm going to stay after and hang for some time of prayer. I'd be happy to hang here. Um, We often say it that our elders are in the office to answer questions. Preeminently, our elders are in the office so that you can be ministered to. So take advantage of that. Take advantage of an elder who loves Jesus and wants to pray with you in, in faith for what you're facing. So God, we love you. You are worth it all. Jesus, you are Lord. And we submit our lives to you. Tomorrow morning when we wake up, this week when we go to school, Everything, everything about how we're supposed to live and respond, we give it to you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.